Three, two, one. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, it's a very special one because we are live at Near Day at ETH Denver with none other than Alex Aurora. Hello, hello, everybody. Welcome, Mr. Shevchenko. Hello, AVB. Long time no see. Long time no see. When did we see each other last? Well, probably it was in Bogota. Have you been there? It was in Bogota, indeed. I don't know if I should be saying this, but I'm always impressed when I see you. And there is no shortage of stories and things to highlight my amazement. But one thing that really struck at me from Bogota was that the Near Foundation people had like armored vehicles and security and drones and shit. And you were like, chill in the middle of the street waiting for an uber like asking people's plans and just like going with the flow yeah why not like i was waiting for the for an uber but i was keeping my mobile phone in my pocket it was pretty good there were lots of bad stories going around and people were scared and so on but like i'm from ukraine there is a war there and in bogota there is no war It highlights two very interesting things that probably start setting the tone about Aurora. The first one is that humility and just like down to earth building approach and showing before telling. I know that we've had many conversations around what other people are saying that they are doing or that they will do, but there's many chinks in the armor. I know that's a weird thing, but... (laughs) And yeah, the second one is obviously by comparison some things that may appear to be outsized risks if you live in Geneva are like, you know what? It's not really that much that could happen to me standing outside this five-star hotel. Yeah, we're always trying to be very down to earth. Um, I don't think that the project, in case you're building a project in Web3, in case it is more or less successful, uh, it, it doesn't make you better than anyone else. You're just an ordinary person. In case, during my PhD, so here's the story. The one that you never heard, the one that never in Web3 actually heard. So during my PhD, I was doing a PhD applied to mathematics. I was doing modeling of oil fields. I was calculating my programs on, on biggest computers in the world. Actually, the biggest plus in the US, it's called Sequoia. Yeah, so I, back then, I was calculating it. What so year is this? It, it was like 15, yeah, 12 to 15. This is the time when I was doing PhD. Not that long ago. Yeah, not that long. So the computers were very large. It's not like like a monolithic computer from the 60s. Right. And that was a pretty straightforward switch for me from the calculations on clusters, which are multiple computers that are connected together and jointly they are calculating some problem. So the switch from this setup, the blockchain was straightforward because blockchain is when many computers all together interconnected are calculating something together. So the switch was pretty straightforward. My the professor who was, was helping me out with this PhD, like, as it's called, like my mentor there, he's an absolutely brilliant and well-known scientist in Soviet Union or in post-Soviet Union countries. And he's also doing quite a lot of international research. An absolutely brilliant man. He never was short of spending time with me looking in my code and consulting, helping me with, with some specific issues that we had there. He was looking on the output. He was having some hypothesis and saying so. And he was always saying that be down to earth, 
and people are going to follow. I always felt that I'm on the same level with him, but obviously he is a, he is a grand. It's, it's a, and I'm just a PhD student. I was never having this kind of change of the, that I'm speaking to somebody out up there and he was never looking at me from top bottom. So that, that is super important. This is something that, that creates this great atmosphere when you are working together with people. In Aurora Labs, we also have this stuff like everyone is able to talk to anyone. Sometimes I have situations when people just write into me and they are saying to me that, hey, Alex, the proper way how to pronounce this word in English is this. I say, oh, thank you very much. I have lots of things to learn. That's yeah. really interesting. I'm really curious. Did you find that equality in relationship between like more advanced mentor and PhD student? Was it something that was more specific to you to maybe like shared culture or whatever reason there may have been like a working relationship there or is that kind of relationship normal in that university setting higher studies phd level how would you say that the experience of all the students was perhaps yeah um hard to say probably there is a percentage of this that is common but with this particular person with him it was on the next level that's great actually i have had two mentors one was a bigger scientist. Another one was more a manager, I would say. I love how you don't give names. It's um, like, you will never know. Was it yeah. Einstein? <laughs> <laughs> no, he was already dead. Yeah, so another one was more of a manager. And uh, yeah, from that standpoint, given different perspectives on this stuff, uh, especially because we have been working on not just pure scientific research, but actually it, it is applied math. Right. So we have been applying it for the oil fields, these places where the oil is going to be extracted. In so from that standpoint, that was, uh, that was pretty cool. That's awesome. And I guess an extension of that question, I, from the outside, it seems like there's a very good, like culture and working dynamics inside Aurora. I'm just wondering if you start peeling out the onion, you know, how many layers removed, you know, there's Aurora near foundation. Aurora, Ethereum, Aurora L2s, Aurora Web2. Do you see any like particular dynamics or challenges as you start to approach each one of those? I'm guessing that they may make sense to have a strategic. Like we don't engage with you for now. We'll work with you for this specific task and fuck off for the rest. Like, <laughs> Yeah, starting today, since we released Aurora Cloud, for us, it is an absolutely major milestone. The whole team has been working for this for years, literally. And that, that release is actually wraps up our initial ideas around Aurora. I feel complete right now. I feel that I can talk about all of the original ideas. I feel that they are coming into fruition because as you said, we are not the type of the guys that are telling to everyone that, hey, we are going to do all of these spaceships and everything is going to be great and even greater than you think. Instead, our approach is to build things, deliver them, see that they work, and then tell about this stuff. So right now I can tell about all of the original that Aurora team has been having two years ago. Yeah, and that's why we can work. With regard to the partnerships, obviously our biggest partner is, is NIR and NIR Foundation and Pagoda. Uh, I can tell you pretty openly, just a week before East Denver, I've been having face-to-face -face meetings with the leaders of NIR Foundation. We have been discussing the partnership and how we are aligning, how we are kind of splitting the work in between different people and different companies inside of the NIR ecosystem in order to be 
efficient in order to deliver faster and things like that. So we have this, these conversations constantly. On the other hand, with Pagoda, for example, uh, we have had the security reports coming from them around three weeks ago, and they were notifying us that there are some potential problems there. And because of these good established connection channels, we were able to react really fast, make sure that the funds that are stored in the bridge are secured. That's good. I am constantly amazed. I think I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Because I know that we've been trying to have this conversation for a long time. I think we've seen each other in person now. And Korea, Lisbon, Bogota, maybe somewhere else along the way. And I messaged that Telegram chat that you told me that your assistant's monitor. It, I did get a, a response on that one. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, my gosh. It was easier to get a response okay, on your so, personal so, one. So, so the guy is here. Go in to find him. Oh, and yeah, we'll beat desk. him up. I'm really happy that things worked out for the best because you've said something that which is key for the podcast, really, especially because we booked this, whatever we call this, a booth or something for half, two half, hours. Half booth. Yeah, it's half a booth because, by the way, congratulations on the launch. Thank you. Aurora Cloud. Yeah, Aurora Cloud, that everyone are able to go there, check it out, what it is about, and actually try it in production. But have you ever actually tried it already? I only saw the website yesterday. No, I haven't tried it. Okay, there is a there is a silo there already. The first Aurora silo deployed oh, that shit. is called Aurora Innovation, and you are able to go through it. There is a demo that that actually shows all of the features live already. Perhaps the only thing to me, and I'm South American, talk a lot of shit. The thing that is more impressive than technology is the fact that the team was indeed able to keep it relatively secret up until launch. Especially because I would imagine that, you know, bear market, things imploding, other people, lots of noise. I would imagine that the team would have felt the pressure. Like, oh, Aurora is not anything. It's not growing. I would have been on Twitter like, motherfucker, the cloud is coming for you. Yeah, you know, haters always gonna hate. And, uh, and yes, they, this is from one side. From the other side, yes, the market is very challenging, especially for people who, for them, this is the first bear market. Thanks God that I'm in crypto since 15, so it's already eight years. It's just the hell out of roller coaster, both on the emotional side and on the prices, volumes, and trends. The very important thing for any company in the blockchain is actually keep calm and be resilient to all of this pressure. It is super, it drains lots of, lots of energy from people, but the more balanced we are, the more we are able to maintain our condition, less we are influencing others, so it is kind of going to be better. Any rituals, any systems, both personally or even at company level? We have an all-hands meeting. We're a pretty big company at the moment, around 60 people. But we still have an all-hands meeting, hour call or something like that, 40 minutes call every week. Actually, right after the Alpha Leaks, Alpha oh, wow. Leaks ends, and everybody are able to understand from the company, everybody are able to understand the updates from the ecosystem. And then we're going into the internal updates and on who is doing what. This is how it is structured. But for me personally, I can tell that that the stable thing in my life, the thing that supports me a lot, that gives me lots of power is obviously my family. My wonderful wife and my kid. Yeah, I'm getting lots of energy from them and I'm extremely grateful to them that, that they understand me and understand all of this pressure that is, that is there in my work time. And they able to keep with it because one of the things that I really afraid 
after knowing many people in Web3, their martial status is either diverse or, or they are not even trying to find. Single and virgins. Hello. <laughs> yeah, something like that. So yeah, that, this part is giving me also some additional stress, but I'm extremely grateful to my family to be able to support. And that's, that's really a thing in my life that I really value. Thanks God that it is there. That's good. If you can find a meaningful other to support you through these times, that's a keeper. I will never forget, actually, two things from Elon Musk. And then I'd like to know what you think about Elon Musk. The first one is he married this, his wife, and then they got divorced when shit went south and he was almost broke. And then he married her again when he made money. So for what seems to be the smartest and wealthiest man in the world, I don't know, marrying the same woman twice raises some question marks. I'm sure she's amazing, but... Probably it was actually love. Not... I'm sure it was actually love, but I guess it, for me it was more of a statement of yeah, you gonna need break to be it there up. during the bad times as well. Right, and right. the second thing from Elon that has really stuck to me is that he was reflecting on the Tesla stock being a public company back when they were thinking about taking it private. And he was like, look, you never win. If the price of the stock is up, everyone's rich, no motivation to work. Price of the stock is down, everyone's poor, no motivation to work. So it's very hard to keep the focus. And in some ways, you know, I'm... That's a narrative I'm trying to build in my head. I'm like, look, maybe near price grew too fast. Now it's a time to build, to accumulate, to give more people the opportunity to join the ecosystem and own a meaningful share of the network. There's many ways in which you can rationalize it. Sure. But I'm not going to lie and say that when you're down 30, 40, 50, 90%, it's not the default to wake up and be like, yeah, let's go. Let's fucking go. Yeah, the way how I think about so, and I'm, by the way, I'm extremely bad trader or investor. Again, I'm in crypto for eight years, but I never managed to learn the thing because for me, it is more interesting to build tech than, than actually trade. So yeah, I would recommend to everyone who's listening to this pod, make sure that you are investing the amount that you are able to play with, right? You can think of this as, as whatever, Coca-Cola caps, like you're playing Fallout and this is some, some numbers. And, and yeah, and you can think of this and don't, don't keep it very close to your heart. I'm actually the same. I even tested next with an Aurora tonic spin orderly. And I even made videos for them. And it's funny because I'm such a bad trader. It was basically a charity. <laughs> just <laughs> handing my money over. Yeah. But a framework that I really like recently, I've been doing lots of reading about like building these and growing decentralized communities. I really like the framework of creating opportunities for people to get involved and transfer ownership of the network to these hopefully ever-increasing network of contributors. So on the near side, I guess that's what the NDC it's set out to do, distributing money for a while through the marketing DAO. So once again, you know, who out there can do something to grow the near ecosystem, start accumulating tokens. Know that Aurora has a very successful Mark DAO. We have what is called the community grants. Community grants. Yeah, and our team is really kicking in there. Everything is public. All of the payouts public. All of the reports from grantees are public. Everything is located on forum.org.dev. In case you're willing to be involved with, with this community grants, you're able to go there, put your application there. This is for everyone who is willing to spread the word about Aurora, create some content, but uh, you are not a developer. Yeah. I think that's massive because it's about aligning incentives. And some people may be like, hey, I'm doing all this work and this person owns all the tokens. 
that's not a long lasting relationship. And to be honest, to some extent, that's one of the tensions that I have with the Ethereum community. Most people that are you know, flipping JPEGs and all these DGN things and they can justify high gas prices, that accumulated Ethereum at 16 bucks. That's when I got involved back in the day. I went traveling around the world and paid student debt, so I didn't really have anything left. I know the profile so well, and that's what cheats me. And maybe it's not the best venue to say it because they're probably all here at Ethereum right now, but that's when I'm like, look, it's fine if you have money and you can pay for the Grand Hyatt. You can't propose a Grand Hyatt as a housing solution for everyone. And I think that's where the blockchain conversation is so important to be like, hey, we're not an Ethereum killer. We're not going to shit on any other L1. We at least have to meet in the middle about what problem is a blockchain trying to solve or what are the categories of problems, the categories of users. That's a conversation that I've always found interesting because I'm not a developer, so I always come at it from like the end user. But I'd love to know your thinking because there seems to be very strong alignment within the near core team and the branches to always put the user first and the technology is almost optimized for that end goal. And at times it has either not been obvious or explicit or because not all the pieces are there, maybe people don't quite get it. But I do think it's getting more obvious. And I think this is going to be a good segue to start breaking down what Aurora Cloud is because if people didn't get it before, I think that the cloud offering, it's going to be insane. For me, blockchain technology is always about kind of moving additional hypothesis or additional entities slash people whom you need to trust. I, I was raised in Ukraine right after the split of the Soviet Union. The time was extremely hard. My parents, though they were PhDs, they needed to go in villages and doing refurbishments in order to get some food because the village is only the place where you're able to get food. And that was pretty, pretty intense and pretty tough. And I saw that, that because of the bureaucratic procedures, because of the corruption in the government, unfortunately, they were extracting the value out of the people. And that's why the thesis of, of the blockchain as a, a technology that removes these intermediaries is, is extremely appealing. If you will take a look at, uh, at the profile of blockchain people, it is heavily shifted towards the poor countries and the countries that are unstable. And the reason is that it is very close to them. And the use case that I was thinking of first in 2015, and I'm still thinking of, is the actual elections on the block. Moreover, this use case, that, that was one of the first things that I have been doing. And we've designed a system for elections that is extremely efficient, that is much better than the current election system. And within the system, there is no place for bribery just because a person who votes is able to vote multiple times and he's able to literally prove anyone else that he voted for any possible person. It was even back then based on the commitments and decay things when decay tech was only in, in its infancy. So that, that solution is an extremely great. And we have been trying to sell it to the government. And uh, how's that going? Yeah. <laughs> so I can, like, when the doors are open and, and all of the media people are inside. These guys are saying, oh my God, super great. Yes, obviously going to implement, going to lead the world with this innovation. 
when the doors are closed, they're saying, look, you're a cool guy, Alex, but in computer systems, there might be bugs. And maybe your system is going to calculate the votes incorrectly. So it should be natural to have a place where you're able to change the results into the correct ones. And then the correct results are going to be displayed. And according to them, the election process is going to be finished. So the, a backdoor to build in the bribes. This is for the correct results. You like, no, because the this machine is, this is got what, it wrong, but you and I know the officials know. The officials know. Yeah. And I said, and then I'm answering to them. No, we can introduce a backdoor, but all of the information can be audited and everyone will see that you executed a transaction when you flipped the candidates and, and the results are absolutely different. I can see how out of values, principles level, you should let them know. Maybe I don't want to do it or you're going to get caught. But for entertainment purposes, you should have let them do it. <laughs> yeah, I usually tell truth to people. And once I was telling this to them, they usually said, okay, nice, great tech. We're going to call you. Please close the door on the other side. So, yeah, we actually have done not the elections back then, but Poland and implemented the Poland system in, in the UK. There was a Poland in a local community around the medical or the healthcare updates, healthcare system update, and local authorities were willing to get the information from people about this stuff. And they have had some kind of scandal with their Poland service provider. So they wanted to try out something different and kind of show to the people that their vote actually counts. So we did it. It was pretty nice use case. Unfortunately, on the level of the governments, in case we're talking about parliament elections or president election, it is extremely hard to push. Though I, I, the technology is there, it is implemented. I think you went for the high fences. Understandably, you have the technology. What I find interesting is that 90% of the world, if not more, it's a similar experience. Ukraine, Venezuela, very different distance, culture, everything. But the corruption tells are exactly the same. Everyone I've had on the podcast from Croatia, Russia to Brazil, like the corruption is exactly the same in most parts of the world. And I guess the challenge that we have is people would fall into different buckets. One is, fuck it, it's the way it's always been. It's not going to change. You just deal with it and hope for the best within that rotten system. And then the other bucket is people that say, I can't become the best version of myself in this rotten system. I need to get out. And in a very ironic way, because that results in the best talent in the world aggregating in the same three or four countries, there's actually no incentive to fix the other fucked up countries. Yeah. So I think that we're reaching a really good inflection point because... These countries that have traditionally been the recipients of talent are now starting to go off the rails. And they've always had challenges. Maybe I'm just older now, or maybe the media has more coverage. But we do seem to be getting more buy-in, even from people that thought that they were safe or in a safe jurisdiction. And I guess that the challenge is, how can we broadcast a message that blockchain technology or subsets of it can help alleviate some of these problems. Because I feel like most people don't believe it. Common narratives are burning the Amazon, 
can't scale and NFT rugs. Like, how can we overcome that? And I recall that last time I talked to you in DevCon Bogota, you told me you could make me famous with all the information that you have and really get the core points out there. So, yeah, from my point of view, we actually blockchain from in terms of the delivering the message is actually pretty successful because if you will take a look at the ads that Apple is doing right now, you, have you seen these ads? There's a person who is holding the iPhone and the iPhone is just closing his face and like a, a slogan there is something like privacy. It's all about iPhone. <laughs> It is funny for crypto people, obviously. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure that I'm missing something in the everywhere, image. Everywhere, Just go to California, you will see it everywhere. Yeah. What, what does it mean? What's the reason why this is happening? That's super simple. Web2 companies understand that the message of privacy, decentralization, and additional things, resistance to the centralized entities is delivered. It is delivered by the blockchain. People started to understand that they need to have more protection. And that's why the message is out there. And the other day, I, sometimes I meet people, different people, just random people, either just Uber drivers or just people in the streets. We are just having a small talk. And when they are asking what I'm doing, I'm saying, yeah, I'm in IT. And I said, okay, IT, but what specifically? I said, Connecting okay, servers. If, it is, if it is interesting to you, like there is this tech blockchain and there is cryptocurrencies that are working on top of this. So maybe you have heard of this. And then half of the people that I'm meeting, answering that, that are not from the blockchain ecosystem. They're answering me, oh yeah, I own some crypto. And they, oh my God, really? That's cool. Shiba Inu and... I don't know. We, I'm usually not asking which because don't want to, don't want to buy us. Don't want to go in the selling mode. I would like to keep the conversation human. Nice. It's just part of the really complex web of issues we have now. The other company that may be doing something similar to Apple is Visa. I actually saw an ad from them on Twitter this morning saying, oh, Visa, they're actually fully aligned now with Web3. It's crazy when you think about it because anyone building on DeFi will tell you that they exist to take down the duopoly of Visa and MasterCard. But what I gather from that is these companies identify values or narratives and at least in the West hypermedia environments, we have luxury beliefs. Yep. Ask anyone that has actually truly embraced transparency, they're getting fucked. Not even by the authorities, like their peers. And you can point at any sort of like industry vertical. There seems to be something human about we want to belong. And that's why when they say it's a paradigm shift, I think that's what they're trying to allude to. We need to fundamentally change the way we see things. And for me, the internet, iPhone, apps, it's been a really interesting curve because I left Venezuela in 2008, airport, crying. My mom is, oh, you can come back if you want. Like, we already paid university. Don't worry, just stay. And my dad was like, look, yeah, sad. But when I studied in Canada back in the day, I would go visit and I would arrive before the letters that I sent it. So it's, now we have real-time communication everywhere in the world. And you can see how the paradigm shift is unconscious. Now we expect to be communicated all the time. And we expect to be able to film and record everything and to do transactions. So I guess that the challenge there is 
how can we replicate that level of user experience with the blockchain backing? Because in some ways, the narrative is all that we have, which is why some people just get tired of it. How many ETH demos have there been? Ethereum was what, like seven years late to whatever they shipped recently, which is not sharding. And now they're pushing layer twos and every three months they cannibalize each other with a new layer two. The narrative gets tiring, but we do need people to buy into the vision. And then it's like, hey, you like the vision? I got this for you. <laughs> yeah, I do believe that the core piece there is that we should not omit, we should not be rebellious. Web3 people, everything started from this anarchist people and moving, taking care about all of this transacting value outside of the system, right? And then these crypto anarchist people are usually connected with some bad things. And because of this hide, because of this, uh, all of this problematic that were casting shadow on, on all over the world. However, right now, the things are shifted that, that's the moment in time for us to understand that many things that are developed in are actually positive. Web2 is doing a tremendous job on user experience. It is doing a tremendous job on product management and product development. Just take a look at, at the same Apple, right? Like devices are just outstanding. It, they are slick and they can sell. Apple, a single company, is two times bigger than the whole industry combined. We need to stop being just rebels and try to educate ourselves about this stuff, which means that we need to the concepts of better user experience, which means that we need to think about the users and the businesses who can work on the blockchain and deliver the values for them, the ones that they value. Users are value great interfaces. They value the convenience of users. Businesses value the convenience of them doing businesses. They need to have SLAs. They need to have predictable costs. They need to have somebody on the phone be able to be called and fix the problem in case there is a problem there. It is a completely different concept. And we need to just to start incorporating this in, in everything we're doing. And we're going to be closer, we're going to go down from that mountain of the crypto anarchist rebellions closer to people that are there and they are willing to just live their ordinary normal lives. Person that was sitting next to me today at some point in the morning, not your talk, I promise. They were saying something like create better user experiences. And he just, you know, he was taking notes and photos and he just says under his breath, yeah, just hire more fucking designers. And what I was explaining to him is that it's not as simple because what I saw back in the day, like early Ethereum days, it was literally a waste of money. You'd pay a designer and they'd design you a perfect, flawless app with a beautiful user experience, something that could actually attract people, retain them, engage them, reward them. And then the engineers tell you, actually, that user flow ABCD, it's ABC in certain entire alphabet plus costs, plus friction, yeah. dependencies. So the engineers said designers can't help us because they don't understand. And I feel like we're trying to go backwards now. What with the engineering skills that understand the level that we have to be at for designers to be able to create beautiful experiences? How can we work towards that? And that's what attracted me to Nier. I don't know if I've ever told you, but 
mid 2020, I had an L1 thesis. I set myself a target to accumulate enough of each L1. Played with Solana, Avalanche, Phantom, Near. And even though the technology stack has Forex beyond what I understood at the time, it was at focus on user experience. It was a very simple proposition. If we were able to solve the scalability issue and the cost issue, what could you build? And that question hurts, but for most blockchains, it's really not that much. So yeah, I think that user experience definitely rocks. And that's why we see the kind of and the user great user experience and great whatever business experience is a core thing for the mass adoption. That's why that's the thing that is super important for us for Aurora, right? Yes, we are an EBM solution, but all of our time that we are investing in are the tools that are going to elevate user experience and business experience. Our Aurora users are able to have free transactions. Businesses that are working with Aurora are able to pay for the user transactions and they're able to include inside of their own business model all of the ugliness of the blockchain so that it is not exposed to the users. We're so used to this stuff in Web2 world that we are even done thinking about it. And you know what's wild? Back in the day, I knew of builders that asked, this is common sense, can I pay for the fee? Even if it costs a hundred bucks, whatever. Goldman Sachs, you waive the fees because you've got a special client. That's just the cost of doing business. It was not possible. So once again, massive kudos to the Aurora team. I am curious and the, the path here. I'm really curious if we have parallel timelines, what were you doing around the time that Ilya was still at Google? And then at what point do paths intersect? Because if I recall correctly, you both know each other from high school yeah. back in Ukraine. I've joked on nine podcasts now. That's like X-Men high school for like gifted children. <laughs> But I think it's just the two of you. Or is there anyone else from the core team that you... Uh, there are people also from the same school. For example, Vlad. Yeah, so Vlad is from the same school. Very smart. He's a couple of years younger than Ilya. Yeah, ours uh, gave quite a lot of great people for... Uh, There's for... that school and a high school in India, which I and all these like high-performing tech people now also came from. But yes, sorry, parallel timelines. Whereabouts were you when he was at Google and where do the paths intersect? Yeah, so that was a pretty straightforward setup and then the reason for this. So when he was in Google in 15, 16, he was there and I discovered blockchain, started to work on the blockchain. Actually, the project that I was working on, it is called Exonum, was one of the, one of the first SDKs for private blockchains. We were having the belief that there is a sense of having private blockchain. And we developed our own. Uh, back then, it was uh, even no Cosmos. It was a tender mint. The project was called tender. We were analyzing different projects. We were finding some critical bugs in tender mint. We were trying to contribute there, but people were not very, they were not accepting these kind of threats. Then after we fixed it and developed our own consensus algorithm, it actually said that, yeah, there was a problem. So they updated it. Whatever. We've been one of the first projects started to use Rust even before it was a stable version of Rust. And that happened only because I was young and crazy. I would never do this. I would put in production any tool that is not in production. It's just insane. In case so, any regulatory agencies are listening, no risks of being taken here. Yeah, absolutely. No, like 
It's just the tool that we have been using for this. Who was stuff. the crazy one, Ilya? It was not about Ilya. This was at the time when Ilya was in Google. Okay. So and who chose to use the primitive version of Rust? Um, so that was the dev that I was working with. I was more on the kind of writing algorithms and he was more on the coding. And he said, there is this new language, Rust. It is focused on security and we are building something that should be very secure. Let's use it. And I said, tell me a little bit more about it because I used to program in C++. And he said, it's like C++, more on security. And yeah, here is, a, this is the website. I'm going to the website and then the version is zero point whatever. And then I said, look, it's not production ready, right? Yeah, not yet, but you know, it's super cool. All of this stuff. Okay, anyway, so we started to do that. And then in a couple of years, in 18, actually, Ilya, a friend of mine or like a person that I know from, from the high school, is messaging me and saying, hey, Alex, you're in the blockchain. You're doing Exonome. And I said, yeah, look, we yeah. just, I'm just starting the company. I love Rust, love these ideas. Let's stay connected. We were not able to find a way how to interact and how to work together back then in 18, but we got connected. And at the moment in 20, when I became a free engine, Ilya was already in the crypto kind of community. I was there and somebody was willing to get in touch with him and I was just introducing them and stuff like that. And then and then I jumped on the call with Ilya just checking how we are. And I told to him that I'm a free agent right now. And he said, great, come, we need the product person to lead the Ethereum direction. And I said, yeah, okay. So I went there and then I started to work on the Rainbow Bridge and, and EVM. Back then, EVM concept was just a concept. Rainbow Bridge was in a half done stage. It needed to be productized. And I started inside. That's the moment in time when we started to work with Ilya really closely. Interesting. The reason why I asked is because... And probably Ilya didn't like me a lot because in three months he came to me and said, Hey, Alex, it seems like you need to go out. <laughs> Do you want to do a spin-off from have separate company to take care of the Ethereum side? And I said, okay, but let me please release Rainbow Bridge and then release Aurora. And then we're going to spin off because it is going to be an operations nightmare. So we did exactly that. In the friendliest way possible. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you find that you get that reaction from people often? Because I recall the panel that I saw you at in Seoul, Korea, which I live streamed and renamed Alex Shevchenko destroys. I think it was Optimism and I don't know who else, Celestia was on stage. But the audio was terrible, but it's on YouTube. And I think it was recorded as well by the 8th Soul people. But what I was laughing is that the panel looked like the smart, annoying kid in high school. <laughs> You were peaceful, patient, didn't interrupt, waited for your turn. And then <laughs> in the smoothest delivery possible, just obliterated the pipe dreams. You were like, but why would you do this? Like, you're missing A and B. We already have that. And you're ignoring C, which is a big no-no. And no one has a solution. It was very methodical. But what I'm wondering is... Coming from a Dumber person, normally people can tell when somebody's like a few notches up and they don't like it. So kudos to Ilya for recognizing that maybe you were better off leading your own ship. And yeah, I'm wondering whether sometimes you've had that experience in the past or how do you deal with it? Because once again, 
back to the beginning of the conversation. It's that humility combined with you can't hide brains. At least if you're living your life to your full extent, humble and smart just go hand in hand, right? Well, yeah, I think, again, you should be very down to earth, right? First of all, Ilya was not, we have an absolute amazing relationship. It's super great. And I was just joking that, that was not willing to see me inside. But that, that conversation was, was stimulated him just being tired because everything comes up to the CEO. And the only way how you can scale CEO is to have multiple CEOs, right? So that's, uh, that's corporate. Thing. But at the time, was Aurora near Inc? Yeah, it was near Inc. So, yeah, and I often ask Ilya gonna, how he can stand all of these people that are coming and asking some questions, some stupid questions that they are able to Google or they are able to understand directly from the website, right? Like near, okay, you just Google near, okay, top 50 coin market cap or top 35 coin market cap. There are tons of the additional information about it, tons of lots of things there already. Just don't be lazy, just spend couple of minutes of your time and get the answer to this question that you're answering, that what you're the... asking. But, and then Ilya said, but people want to communicate. We want to talk and that's okay. And in case you were smarter, this particular topic, it doesn't make you better. You need, always need to be humble. You always need to be very patient. Yeah, you God always bless need... his soul. Yeah. That's an important thing. But in case the conversation is going some specific topics, you have been thinking about them for a long time, or you do know some specifics and you are able to communicate on this level, then why not? Why you need to put yourself in a kind of position of a dumb person? Instead, you are able to say what you think about it, you're able to argument it, but you need to do it friendly. That's the proper way. I know that I know nothing about whatever, about South. Actually, I know quite a lot oh, about South. I actually was doing ballroom dancing for a lot, for really? some period, like more than five years. Well, looking forward to and seeing I, you tonight at the opening party. And I was doing the Latin program. So rumba, cha-cha, jive. Really? Tango. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you get a chance to practice that in Portugal? Do they have more no. of that style of music or? So, so I quit this thing and, and yeah, I was also going to, to some bachata and salsa classes, but then I quit it just because it just held twice tons of money. Everything that I was earning during the day, I was spending. Oh, really? And then I get to the point when, when you just need to train a lot. I was training five times a week with a going on the contests, competitions during the weekends. And then I have had no time to write my freaking PhD. So I needed to exit it. I think we went down a tangent. I identified with the school of thought because I'm from the same school. I remember Crystal Clear Law School. Lecturers tell you, unless you've done the reading and you've asked your peers and you've tried to solve it, think about it for a while, don't bother me. And they had a very natural selection approach. They were like, look, it's not that we don't want to help. Technically, that's our job. It's that out of a cohort of 600, we know that only 200 are going to get jobs. And to be in that 200, you must be resourceful. So I... Try to see both sides of if you want to succeed, you definitely need to go above and beyond finding answers. And definitely when you do find blockers, reach out to people, especially someone like Ilya, right? 
I'd feel silly asking you like, hey, Ilya, how do I replace my private key? I can just ask somebody else or do some yeah. research. Peter from the Hewitt wallet actually helped me a couple of days ago. So hopefully my OPSEC will be upgraded. Yeah, people need to get to some level to understand that other people time cost money. And sometimes it is quite a lot of money. And for you even to communicate to them, and then your time also costs money. There are lots of the things where you are extremely, you can be extremely very, you can be extremely efficient and just spend some, a little bit more of your time without all of the hustle. I really wonder where you see that we are, because for all startups, they say early days, you do things that don't scale. So if you have to sit down with a team at East Denver that looks like they've got potential, fuck it. You may patch things together. I've heard that's actually most of Solana, but I can especially see the frustration when a lot of the time and the resources go into making it easy for people. Because that's where I would get frustrated. It's like, not only are you taking time or valuable resources, but these are the resources that have been poured into making it easy for you. Do you really need the help kind of thing? And that's why I've always seen the role of the marketing DAO. It's shapes and evolution as we need to do a better job at communicating what exists. And we're really pushing now to have more meetups, to have more of a presence in hackathons. I've actually been thinking for a while to make a proposal to the Aurora Community Grants. Even if I don't do it myself, guys, create a bounty, use a DEX on all of the L2s on Ethereum and on Aurora. Just to experience how long it takes, the costs, basic things like that to make people really start to appreciate the nuances. Because to me, we're so early that the objective should be to capture the imagination of developers and make them think, yeah, fuck it, whatever, what's in front of me. What really excites me is what I could do with those tools. And that's what I've loved about Near Day today, that you guys are presenting a suite of tools and saying, okay, the ball is on your court now. If your product doesn't succeed, maybe try a different idea, like that's on you. We don't want to have the technology as the excuse. What did you present today, Alex? Because what I thought was a pretty good offering for Aurora, fully compatible EVM, cost-effective Aurora Plus. I was waiting for a plan for people to pay for more transactions because I'm a DGEN. I use 50 transactions in a day, any day. But the suite today really goes above and beyond. And I think that it breaks that perception of what blockchain is. In fact, I may quote you, controversial. I was a bit sad. I was the only one making weird noises in the room. I feel like we needed more of a reaction to it. But you said it. You heard it here first. The blockchain is dead. It has failed. Shevchenko, 2023. What do you mean? Who wrote that line for you? Let's go deep. Yeah, it was me who was writing this for me. Yeah, and I, I indeed said that blockchain has failed. And I was telling exactly about the things that we have been touching earlier on. It failed in actually delivering the promise. Right? There is no convenience in the blockchain tech at the moment. And that's also something that we have touched that, that I was saying that we are trying to fix the user experience. And the thing that we launched today is called Aurora Cloud. This is a suite of products that are focused on making blockchain usable and convenient for both businesses and users and their users. With Aurora Cloud and a particular piece of it that is called Aurora Silos, you are able to launch literally a copy of Aurora in days, set up everything there. 
So you're able to do this and, and have some additional controllable mechanisms around it. Uh, first of all, for your specific Aurora deployment, you're able to have a custom token, custom theme that can be absolutely different from the just uh, this uh, auction model that is used everywhere. You're able to control several ACLs or access control lists. Um, one is the list for who is able to deploy smart contracts to your blockchain. Another is for the people who are able to transact on your blockchain can, for example, create a closed community. And in order to get into this community, you need to get an NFT or you are not able to transact. That's it. And uh, yeah, you are able to have all of this thing. And, and this is like your sandbox. This is convenient for businesses because it has a predictable cost because one Aurora instance can be scaled up to one year shard and it has a, a fixed capacity. This capacity is around 10 to 15 million transactions per day. So it is like X5, X10 compared to Ethereum. For what, context, all of Near Now is processing an average of what, 400,000 transactions a day. So we're talking about like some serious capacity just for that one shard. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So there are quite a lot. Like again, in present to Ethereum, it is X5, X10 compared to Ethereum. We can today take all Ethereum and put in a single Aurora silo and it is going to be pretty empty. That's savage. So that's one thing. But besides that, it is convenient for businesses, as I said, just because they are able to introduce their rules of the game and they are able to uh, kind of predict what, what are the costs to go. I think that the idea of having, would you call this a private shard or a specialized shard? It is a public shard. It's just your own... Uh, deployment of Aurora, like your own sandbox. I would call it container. I actually remember you mentioning these during ETH Denver last year, but like off the cuff talking, I think to a couple of students, I don't know if you remember them. And their eyes were like bulging out of their head. And this other dude who was like overhearing like me, he was like, this is insane. And back then you gave the students like your personal telegram. I hope they reached out and I hope that they're still in the ecosystem. There were a couple, yeah, yeah. The guys were writing. They were saying, hey, we are students uh, from the University of Colorado. Here, some stuff. I think that the use case has definitely been validated. And I would actually like to get your insights. Recently, Coinbase announced their own deployment of an L2 using the Optimism stack. So maybe we can use that sort of announcement. I usually call that noise. Because we've seen other announcements like Disney going to Polygon and no, no one ever hears from that again. But considering that Coinbase is a Web3 player and that they're, I guess, I'd like to know the parallels or what are the similarities of them using that optimism stack at the space yourselves in the map and then start to identify maybe what things would be similar or different. That, that's precisely the example with Aurora Silos. It's just in case they would be choosing Aurora stack instead of optimism, obviously I would be a little bit more happy. Two of us. Yeah. But the difference, the difference in between the optimism stack and the Aurora stack is literally how it works, in what, how it works. The core specific thing, and then the reason why we are calling Aurora silos containers, not app chains or not additional networks and stuff like that, is because it's funny enough, but silos are not siloed. 
they are interconnected. They all are working on top of Near, and Near can be viewed as a cross-interaction layer, a layer that allows the cross-silo smart contract calls. It allows the settlements happening in between the silos. So these silos, yeah, they are separate sandboxes with their own rules of the game, but they are interconnected. They are composable. This is something that not existent anywhere, and this is an absolutely new class of the products. This is a massive point that when I heard it for the first time or when I got it, everyone that I tell, like normie, made up, conference, conversation, very few people is aware of. Even on the original Ethereum sharding model, the Ethereum shards wouldn't talk to each other. It's like they are the data shards mainly. The there was no no idea for Ethereum to separate the execution. Because what I what they explained to me back in the day was that even if Ethereum reached a level of sharding, it may not actually solve the scalability issue because oh sure possibility. Yeah, so what's the point of being in shard four if I want to interact with you and you're in shard one? Yeah, that's the thing. The whole concept of sharding is the concept of parallelizing of the execution. EVM is built with a concept of synchronous execution. The transactions are going one by one. Transaction is either completely working or it doesn't work. That's it. Or it is rolled back. And cross-contract calls in Ethereum must be synchronous. One transaction starts somewhere, then it goes to another smart contract, another one, and then the execution follows along. So in case different smart contracts are on different charts, and that is a natural thing to expect, it means that the communication between them must be asynchronous, or you cannot do the parallel execution. That's it. So the EVM model by default cannot be sharded cannot be scaled and that's why the word this concept of data shards and stuff like that uh, you just can't scale evm by default so that's the reason why near does not have evm and they started with their own virtual machine but aurora and what aurora does it allows you to launch multiple evms you cannot scale one ev but you can run 10 evm 100 thousand and you're able to do it efficiently on top of near that provides you this sharding and you're able to create asynchronous calls in between these evms no problem absolutely the same way how smart contracts are interacting in near right now so yeah you have your own blockchain sandbox everything inside synchronous pretty good as you expect from the evm and there are some additional compiles that allow you to interact with the outer world in a asynchronous world, but that's okay. It is good since you are interconnected with them, you're able to get information from there, things like that. And in case developers are going to think about this asynchronicity, will manually think about rolling back the transaction in case something is wrong in the other shard and you need to roll it back on this shard, which secretly saying to you this is what developers are doing in ordinary worlds that is not web three they always think about this, this there are these things that i call to mutexes they need to take a mutex right and 
do all the stuff. So yeah. So in case you will get a little bit less lazy and think a little bit about this stuff, you are able to crack down the async communication even between different charts. And that's great. And that's great. And this is how we are able to succeed. EVM is something for the high school where you are able to think about simple applications, the applications that are running on a single device like your phone. Years runtime and asynchronous runtime is a complicated beast. It is something like an internet with APIs. You need to call them. You need to wait for the response and things like that. And it is not for everybody. It is for the top 10% of the smartest developers in the world to think about this stuff. So cross-interaction in between different Aurora silos or the near-native runtime, if you will, this is for more advanced applications or the applications that require such interactions to happen. So, yeah, this is how I see it. That's the difference in between the EVM and the near-VM or the Aurora and Aurora silos and a kind of cross-silo interactions within the near program. Fascinating. And just to clarify, the sync and async nature, that even applies or affects different layer twos on Ethereum. So Arbitrum and Optimism can't call each other. They cannot. Because yeah. there is, they can call the bridge. So they need to set up a bridge and then there is something is that is executed on Arbitrum. And then there is some portion of the data that is transferred over the bridge and to optimism or maybe through multiple bridges. And then there is an additional transaction that needs to be called on optimism and then the callback and stuff like Which that. Which is not sustainable at all. In Aurora, this thing happens within a single transaction. You send transaction to Aurora mainnet. This transaction calls a compile for a cross-contract call. It spawns the transaction inside of the near during the execution it calls another aurora silo and then the callback is returned it is viewed by original aurora mainnet as an additional transaction that is coming in and things like that but all of this can be wrapped into single ordinary near transaction it is not something new it's absolutely the same concept that is used in near today the reason why i mentioned that is because there seems to be this ethereum culture and for things that are Ethereum layer twos, which people have different meanings to it, but the most basic simplification that I've ever seen is, does it push transactions to Ethereum? Because we want to burn gas, because my ETH bag need to go to the moon. But the problem that I keep telling people is, how do you choose? Like hypothetically, I've got high... I've got high school level of coding. I want to put something on mainnet during ETH Denver. How would you even go about choosing between Arbitrum, Optimism, Metis? I mean, walk around, you'll find at least three or four more. And even after you choose, it's like, well, it's not going to talk to all the other blockchains. So composability is impaired. And then even if you were to deploy your own application on the other ones, it's just a nightmare now maintaining two, four, three, five different spaces. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the ability to have your own L2 on Aurora, which would be very similar, as I understand it, as, say, Arbitrum, but it talks to not only all the other EVM chains, but near mainnet itself, is huge. Exactly. A multi-chain world translates into 
the language of ordinary humans as disjointed world where the liquidity is separated, can be used simultaneously. It transfers in the absence of composability. On one network, you have one reputation. On the other network, you have another reputation. You cannot get this information from all over the places. And that's the problem. And now with Aurora Silos, with the whole new setup of how you're launching the networks with the container, you absolutely new category that is developed because of Aurora Silos with the blockchain containers they and their interoperability, there is no more disjointed multi-chain world. I am sure that Brian Armstrong is listening. So we'll welcome him over to the Silas community. I'm sure that you've got a BD team as well who's working their magic. I am really curious. Maybe we can take it like one notch down. Say I am a relatively smart developer. Maybe I don't want to deploy a full silo yet. But I am really curious about that Aurora to near native interaction. That is yet another thing that I it was hypothetically possible. And my understanding is that the Aurora Cross Contract SDK also launched today. Yes. My brain is still healing from your presentation. If you want to run me through again in like super simple terms, and maybe we can have a couple of examples, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, super simple. So now we've introduced already on NearCon, we've introduced this functionality in, in the beta mode on the testnet. The devs were actually hacking with it, trying to build some interesting things. But today we've just checked and tested everything and just deployed it on the main. So now, for example, the following thing can happen. There is a ref finance, the MM solution that is working on top of here. They can introduce inside of their front end the login with MetaMask. People on Aurora network are going to log in, operate on Aurora, and schedule the calls for swapping the tokens. And these calls are going to go to Ethereum native finance over the bridge, and then swap being swapped there, and then bringing to tokens back over the bridge inside of the Aurora. This is something that is possible right now with people not changing the networks. This thing is not a hack. This is not a hack that we just allow in MetaMask to sign the messages. No, people are actually transacting on Aurora, but this transaction is a starting point for a bigger transaction inside that is working in the whole near ecosystem that is called in ref and so on. Michael Birch, the head of the protocol team today, was was showcasing this, and as far as I understand, he was showing a simpler use, use case of using using one of the one of the games on Near, how this game can can be used by Aurora users. The use case that I had in mind, Holder Finance just launched Balancer Fork, and we're actually working with them to create boosted. So they just released boosted pools with Origami, and I believe Bastion is in the works. The way boosted pool works are when you add your assets as liquidity, usually a very small percentage of the assets are actually used, like 10, 20%. So the boosted pool deposits the rest of the dormant assets towards a lending market. So now you have real yield that sustains the, the liquidity. That's been very famous, uh, Balancer and AVI integrations. And what I was thinking was, and correct me if I'm wrong, 
a use case would probably be a holder finance lucid pool where the assets are deposited on borrowed cash. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. And that would be a banger solution because borrowed cash is not available to citizens or residents of the United States. <laughs> so you're on the hook, friend. We can get some meager yield over there. It's not dependent on me. Like the Aurora smart contracts and the tech there is open source. Literally tomorrow, if you want to launch your Aurora, you can do it. Interesting. Sir, I've always had the feeling that the core team, I don't know if I'd say that it's frustrated, but I feel like the core team feels like people don't quite get it. Like all of the hardcore applications, all this shit pushing the boundaries, Keypalm and Near Social and Juliana's, everything that exists, Ref, Boro, etc. It's been loosely built by the same people. So I'm wondering, how do you see that challenge of attracting either that top 10% of developers and acknowledging that perhaps it is very early and we need all the primitives in place or whether you've seen that progression of, okay, now we have several things in place, like alpha dot, whatever the boss GG thing, Aurora cloud. It seems like things are becoming more and more accessible. And I'm sure that we actually do have a lot of high school students here. So how do you see that evolution over time? You know, core core was like competitive programming and like world's physics medals. And let's just say that they work at a different league. Yeah. So these are exactly the people who are designing these things for other. So yeah, I, I do believe that we're coming, we're simplifying things. Aurora is heavily focused on the user experience. Silos is not the only product that's inside of the Aurora Cloud suit. There is also a revolutionary wallets that completely removes the concept of per transaction. And besides that, there is an additional tool for dApps to be able to pay for this transaction and the top protocols on Aurora already are using it. So the transactions on this protocol on Origami, on FreeSolaris, Passion, they are free forever. As of today? As of today. I'm going to bankrupt them because... Yeah, you can spend, you can send I keep shuffling of transactions. my hundred bucks back and forth trying to get more yield. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, the payment for your transactions is inside of their own business model. And it is them who is paying for this. Now we are getting closer to better user experience. That's it. And I can tell you that the success stories of many projects and in, or many networks and so is actually around just one application. It's so for Arbitrum, for example, it is X. And that's the only project that, that makes Arbitrum great and so on. For Binance Smart Chain, the only project that makes it big is Binance itself and uh, pretty deposits and withdrawals that, that cost nothing or almost nothing. So these are the important things there, right? It's not in case, it's one. When we're going to find a proper project that is going to fully understand this, understand the value proposition of the tech that is built. And uh, this project is going to deliver their solution on top of this. Yeah, I absolutely see no problem in getting this ecosystem growing, growing much better than all of the other ecosystems that you even find because of the quality of the tech that supports it. Because then ecosystems, if we're talking about other chains, once they grow, they're hitting the wall in terms of the scalability. But near, there is no wall. Once first big project is landed on near, and by the way, there is this big project, Sweat, and Aurora is pretty big also. 
So once the project landed, there's still plenty of space. And then there is another one can land and another one can land and that's it. The, that's uh, the protocol team is planning to launch this year, hundred shards, 100 shards on the, at the moment, wild. at the moment, there are four shards and the utilization of the network, even with sweat is around one to two, two, three percent or something like that. And now it is going to be multiplied by 25. Are they expecting the usage to increase by that much, or are they just chugging along the technical milestones? I think, taking into account that in Near Foundation, at the moment, there are 12 people in the business development that are absolutely key ass. Taking into account that Polygon and other players, the market, have spent almost all of their money, I do believe that Near Foundation is now in some. I mean, Hypothesis. going back to my original question, how public or where in the documentation spectrum was that ability for Aurora as an EVM, which is a smart contract or near to communicate with near? Because I'm wondering if the Aurora team itself didn't build it, would a random team in you name the country could have said, actually, this is possible, we can do it in the same way that people are hacking with like smaller ideas here. Because that's what I was going at. How can we expand the horizon of the shit that can be built beyond the same cookie cutter ideas that have three or four primitives which have been the same since 2016? This information or this idea can be explored directly in GitHub. That's the only place. Literally the engine, as we call it, Aurora smart contract, call it Aurora engine. Uh, this is a, a repo in the Aurora, GitHub Aurora is near, right? So you can go there and that is just an ordinary smart contract for near blockchain. The smart contract by default can call other smart contracts, right? And actually it does call it, it for example, it calls the rainbow bridge in case there something Oracles needs to be bridged and... and stuff like that. So there might be one can, who is thinking about the stuff of that, okay, Aurora is a smart contract can do all of the possible things on near that other smart contracts are able to. And uh, yeah, why not give an opportunity for it to call other smart contracts by default and put this opportunity inside of EVM runtime. So there must be a couple of compilers developed for this. Yeah, and anyone can go, again, everything that that is delivered on the network is open source. Aurora Engine is open source, Rainbow Bridge, all of its smart contracts are open source. Internal tools, so for example, staking smart contract inside of Aurora. Internal, but I'm saying things internal to the EVM. So staking contract on Aurora is open source. Everything, are even things that are not on chain, many of them are open source. So for example, the RPC, right? that's a natural thing that, that the RPC is open source. There are things that are closed source. For example, the inventory management. The systems that are doing the monitoring of the rainbow, the systems that are helping us to automate some infrastructure, all of these, they, they, it is not required for them to be open source and there is no intention for us to get. But that would be a security concern as well, as opposed to a business protection strategy. Well, potentially, potentially, yes. I do not believe the approach of security through obscurity. Um, I do not believe in this approach, but what I believe in is that Everyone needs to know what he needs to know. So, for example, community grants. 
there is a person in Aurora Labs team who has taken care of it. I don't know anything about it. It is super important to delegate. It is super important to propagate the correct info in the correct amount, right? These things, they are not essential for Aurora to work. Some kind of monitoring thing. Yeah, for just it's just a simple idea. Let's not put the Aurora GitHub with these things that are not that are relevant for only internal infrastructure. So, as a CEO, I'm curious, how do you split your time now? Are you still doing engineering? Is it mostly spending time on a plane? How would you say that the time is split at the moment? Yeah, I'm not doing engineering. I'm participating in the architecture discussions sometimes, but I have an absolute badass engineering team. So obviously my co-founder, Art, the CTO of the company, super great, but there are also a couple of people who are helping. I have a head of engineering, a separate person, his name is Sergey, an extremely bright person, and then a head of the infrastructure, his name is Jonathan. These three guys are taking care of mainly of the engineering, and obviously people who support them, the team leads and the actual engineers, they are absolutely they're able to do much more than I can think of. But sometimes, just because I'm the tech guy, I'm becoming a little bit annoying for them. And I'm also jumping on the calls, asking, what about this? What about that? Have you thought about this? There are some business requirements also. Let's pull it in. Stuff like that. Yeah, but um, most I'm taking care of the taking care of the strategy, taking care of the, the vision of the relationship management with our partners and yeah and also bd stuff like that. now that you mentioned bd near foundation 12 key cast team i'm really curious on how you see that strategy for aurora i know that in the community side informally maybe on chats or on twitter spaces some of us have pondered hey aurora probably the best evm solution out there should we have people that actively go to other projects and other evms and at least offer them like, hey, have you considered, should we have a media unit compare use cases? So maybe not for the established products, but for the up and coming builders, especially I'm super curious on maybe the challenges that the team would have had going out there and selling something when you know that OG is coming because it's hard to go back once you've seen it. Yeah. So we're growing our BD team. I'm available. <laughs> yeah, we're growing and moreover, we also always see that sometimes it is hard to sell when you're inside of the project. I hate people that are coming to you. Hey, how are you? What are you doing? By the way, I don't care. My project is this and you need to buy it. So yeah. And what we will try to launch actually for Aurora is we have an initiative. It's not done. Uh, it's but we have two of, you know, but no, no one's listening. Nobody's listening. So we it's have an Austin Armstrong. That is called an external BD initiative. And the initiative is super simple. It's just to uh, create a set of collateral materials for everyone to understand and to know and kind of educate people. And in case of the successful sales, then guarantee to this the success fee that is paid to them. Through this approach, we would be able to scale the BD effort. And the BD is going to be much more natural because people are usually loving to talk to others that are close to them. And when an outsider is coming in, it's hard to be on the same page with them because naturally our brain resists the ideas that are coming from, from far. 
And from that standpoint, in case, and obviously people, outsiders, are not going to sacrifice their relationship with, with their friends or their close people, uh, close projects, just because of the money. So success fee is important, but obviously for these people, it will be extremely important to be sold into the ideas that, that we are propagating. It, it is an important thing for them to understand that, yeah, this thing is there. It works. I've seen it. I've tested it. Now I feel myself secure that I'm not selling shit to my friends. And then there is an additional bonus that you're going to get it after the successful deal. So that's, and this is what I believe can really elevate the, the BD, you know, we still need to finalize this. I love it. I think it's a great idea. I was technically earlier in the year, last year, business development. And towards the end of the year, especially after Neocon, my title changed. I am now ecosystem success. Both acknowledging that it's pretty much what I do. I'm more on the ecosystem, keeping a tab on everything, everyone, relationships. I'm just really bad at selling. But what I realized is that I'm not bad at selling. I'm actually pretty good. I'm bad at selling when I am meant to be selling. There's a very big difference between being a motivated, ambitious community member and you're out there just finding the best tools for the job and the best matches and making things happen. And when you're an employee, and especially, not that I had it, but people that have bullshit KPIs and metrics and people just, yeah, they're not natural. I'm sure that you've had it, people going into your LinkedIn DMs with a paragraph and you're like, yeah, I'm fine, thank you. In Korea, the one of the night events at a bar, dark, people walking around giving you the business card and like, moving on to the next person, that's not as efficient. So yeah, I think that the external BD role be amazing because once again, as an employee, I guess that it's a very passive, even though you guys are creating collateral, which is great, but you do things during work hours and if the company doesn't give you the resources, fuck it, it's up to them really. I still get paid. But from an external BD role where I see the potential in the community is people that spend their own time researching and learning about a product, that's where the value is. Like how do we fairly recognize, remunerate people that have spent hundreds of hours learning, not just about Aurora, but about all the L2s and they're keeping in touch with things and they're in obscure forums. Cause that's where the gold is. So yeah, I'll be signing up my friend. Do it soon because I want to buy a property in Medellin. <laughs> yeah. Let us finalize this. There are some challenges for this program to, to be started. And the challenges are around making sure that you are not damaging the brand. Well, from one side, from the other side, damaging the relations with the current partners, because if like you need to agree with them that if there is this thing and in case people from these companies are starting to sell your company and not even their day-to-day -day job, how you are going to kind of, there might be some problematic misincentivized behaviors and it is important with the core partners that you have and I agree on this stuff and make sure that everyone is updated that this is how we are performing this is how we are moving forward and that's what you're very diplomatic I've always admired that I can see it in fact I think I've already seen it in two instances you may recall I was skeptical I had some questions about the Aurora validator and it becoming too big, 
and it influencing the network. And your response at the time was very simple. That's really not my problem. Like the foundation looks after the centralization of their network. We're just running one validator and doing our thing. I 100% understand that no one should be punished for being too successful. And if your vertical is growing, we need to try to avoid those zero-sum games of if this is growing, then this is not. And it's just a human problem. I think that some organizations got too big. Some people are clueless. I like that Aurora is nimble. And I don't know if you would agree that if you think about it at an organization level, technically the foundation and the Pagoda are one in Aurora. So maybe those closer working relationships means that the team is more aligned. The other instance where I've seen it is on the community side. There's been many changes in the near community, everything from the guilds program going, community funding verticals, the entire community team getting sacked. There's just been a lot of changes. And it's hard not to notice that during the same period of time, the community on Aurora has been growing exponentially. I actually met the Aurora Latam guys in Argentina recently. And if you were cynical, you may say that there's been a lot of people that were in that near-native community that are now on the Aurora community. And they'll say the same thing that you did, which I agree with them. It's not my fucking problem. If they have issues and there is no structure in place for me to contribute, what do they expect? So I'm... Super curious to see how, if you have any comments, otherwise we can just brush past it, but also how that may play in at the BD level. And that was tying into a question that I had, and I'm mindful of time, so I might as well just jam it in, around the longevity of EVM. Nate Geyer, Mintbase, has got a famous theory, which is that Bitcoin is EVM, modern blockchain. Once you go to the next one, you don't really come back. And some people may say that EVM is that in-between step so we can capture everything that already exists and enable them to scale. But perhaps for the more complex ideas, you push people downstream. I'm willing to go on the record and say that perhaps proximity has been favoring much more DeFi on like the, the main layer. And I'm even curious now because there's an extra variable on the equation with Calimera and privacy. So once again, understanding like, okay, how do we come to friendly terms to honestly and pragmatically assess, okay, you're private, go over there. How do, how does the rest of the equation be the, or balance out? Because I see it as one ecosystem. And for me, as long as any one of those verticals is growing, the whole pie grows, but you definitely have a much better vantage point. So you've touched lots of points here. Let why do you, just my perspective on all of this stuff. First of all, Aurora and Near are not competitors. Aurora is contributing in the Near ecosystem. Every single transaction that is executed on Aurora is a Near transaction, which means that it burns Near tokens, which means that it counts into the total amount of transactions. Active accounts on Aurora are counting in the active accounts of Near. All of the possible metrics are there in case Nate's NFT marketplace is counting inside of the near ecosystem. Why on earth Aurora's smart contract that is also running on near cannot be counted? So, Sorry, Nate. So, so that's it. Now, with Calimero and private shards, 
it is a little bit different because by default, the transactions are not count. But from my point of view, even if you will go on DeFi Llama today, you will take a look at what it is called Ethereum TVL. Then it just calculates L2 TVL inside of it. Misleading. Just, just can be misleading or you can just count it. With TVL, maybe it's just, uh, it, it is a little bit com more complicated. But for, but for Calimero, well, just calculate all of the transactions there. They are working on the same stack. They are providing different solution for different needs. They are using the same set of primitives and they extremely. So Calimero is not a competitor. Calimero is a project that enriches near ecosystem, that gives additional features in the near ecosystem. That's it. And for sure, it is not Ethereum, it is not Polygon, it is not Avalanche ecosystem. If Calimero belongs to one ecosystem, then it is near. There is no other than it. So I do believe that, that all of these projects here, they are natural partners and they are enriching the business proposition that, that they are proposing. Because for Aurora, it is also super simple. I was not telling this, but hey, Aurora silos are on Calimero too. So in case you would like to launch a private blockchain that is scalable, and maybe with multiple silos, you can launch Calimero and then on top deploy Aurora silos. That's wild as shit. Wow. Uh, yeah. We need so, an infographic for that one. Yeah. Or if you want to launch public blockchain, you launch on just on near. That's it. There is no point in splitting these things. There are just options. You want to have EVM, you're ticking it up, then you need Aurora. You, you want to have public, then you go near native. You want to have private, or you want to have higher or more beefy servers or some additional things, you're going to Calimero. There are like... It is just a multiple choice question, and then you could just get all of the features that you would like to get, and everything is great. Now, if we're talking about the longevity of EVM, I would touch base one simple thing, and this is the example from my PhD. So, there are Simulate there are two big simulation software that is used in the modeling of the oil fields. Their core is written in Fortran. There are manuals, printed manuals, where you are specifying the parameters of the calculation that you would like to do, and they are all just documentation for Fortran, how you are just feeding in the information in this simulation software. And they consist of 1,200 pages of printed text. And they are using old calculation algorithms. And there are some small add-ons that are added there. And you know what? For 60 years, the software is there, it works, and nobody wants to change it. And the core piece there is that there are hundreds of millions that are buried inside of this software to make it robust, to make it absolutely like working in a, under any conditions. 
people just don't want to change it. There is no point in doing this. It just works. And you know what? Every time when you're going in the supermarket and a lady is doing some transactions there, or for example, in case you're going into a restaurant and there is these terminals that they are using there in order to track which tape are there, you know what? The majority of them are working on MS-DOS. That's it. You don't, you just don't rewrite this stuff. It was written, it works, and that's it. Now, there are hundreds of millions that are invested into SDKs that are working on top of EVM. Open Zeppelin and others, they are robust. They are proven to be secure. And for blockchain, it is even more important than some kind of monitoring thing in, in the restaurant, right? So there are hundreds of millions that are invested there. And there is no point in changing this in case you're able to maintain a decent thing, right? So for me, it is not about that Rust is better than Solidity. It is only about the economical kind of background for this stuff. You have this thing, it works, you just use it for the applications that are okay for it. In case something is not, like it's hard to implement inside of EVM and you have a synchronous environment, then use it in the synchronous environment. That's it. I'm going to be devil's advocate here. And I know that you did say that if you feel uncomfortable at any point, you'll stand up and leave. So we're close to the end anyway. Let's risk it for the biscuit. <laughs> I'm probably more open-minded now because Aurora keeps taking the EVM to higher and higher levels where EVMs traditionally have not played. But what I'm really curious about is, you know, the banking industry in Australia is the same. Runs on Cobalt. There's like 68-year-old dudes getting paid insane amount of money because no one has learned cobalt in the last 20 years. They say that science advances one generation at a time because it takes a while to like almost unlearn some of the tradition. I'm wondering whether there may be any subtleties or things specifically about the blockchain world because the distribution is so unequal. Like at the moment, most people in Web3 are builders. And sometimes I even call it like engineering Olympics. They enjoy solving problems, even if it's like half the equation or they're trying new things. Developer tooling on your native is one thing that always stands out against other heating L1s. Yeah, I'm wondering whether perhaps on that smaller subset, we're even acknowledging how small Web3 is now, will the newcomers be learning Solidity or Rust or Move? Is there much of a difference between these languages? So... My view is the following. Microsoft Windows, up until now, is writing in their release notes that they support MS-DOS. Which, for context, MS-DOS was like the very first one that Bill Gates created or something? Uh, yeah. It's very old. It, is, it was based on DOS, but yeah. Anyway, I do believe that EVM is here. It is going to be forever. There is no problem with EVM and with its model. Tons of programming languages in the world that are working on the premise of the EVM. Uh, almost all of them, I, I will tell you. The, the, you're writing a program and then it executes line by line. That's the, that's the thing. There are many virtual machines, though, they, that are thinking that multiple prod 
processes can run simultaneously. But, but there is no problem with EVM. There might be some problems with Solidity and maybe better languages are going to be developed for EVM. There is no problem with EVM itself. Everything is great there. Yes, it is synchronous. Yes, it is not scalable for this. 95 or 99% of the applications do not need the scalability beyond EVM. And that's okay. It's like lots of applications that we're using are running on your freaking phone. And that's it. It works. There is no need for you to have two phones to run these applications. So... So my fasting application, it's fine on EVM. It's absolutely okay. Let's raise the stakes. In case somebody is going to develop a fasting application on Aurora, this person is going to get a grant from me personally for this. Ladies and gentlemen. Depending on how good it will be. Because I also oh, need to, no. I also need to share some fat, share some fat. Here we go. We can buy a hack together. That is amazing. Yeah. Sir. So that's, that's the great thing. I don't think that EVM is going to go anywhere just because of the amount of money that is invested already into this and the amount of developers that are out there that are able to develop applications much faster than the developers that are developing for, for other specific runtimes. And also the amount of experience that we have as an industry, for example, for people who are doing security audits, which is super important. They know how to audit Solidity code. They have tools for it. Why not to use this? Yeah, that's my point. And it doesn't mean that EVM is better than something else. It is just different. And that's the fact. You are either agreeing to this fact and accommodate for this and adding and building on top of this, or you're just a person who is not able to accept the, the current state of affairs in the world. Love it. I love that we're here surrounded by rainbows and weird animals shooting rainbows and stuff. One thing that I've also noticed on here is that we don't have the same culture. And I'm wondering, maybe because we were able to just like work on the actual engineering and just like kick milestones and because of a much younger ecosystem, maybe we didn't have the time to like simmer on all those principles and ideals. Like I look at some of the project, projects that have been kicking since 2016. Meta Cartel, Argon, their vision and the reasons why people join the community are so pure and so strong. I feel like we're missing some of that. And you could probably describe that as a Ethereum culture broadly. And I think that you could probably extend that to EVM. So I, I do think that EVM has a very important role, not just as a tech dealer, but also as a culture, keeping us grounded to the origins. If you take it to an extreme, you know, who are the latest contestants? Aptas and Sui, the Facebook kindred. So it's important to remember why we're here and what we're building towards. I don't know how pressed with Tommy you are, and I don't know if they're going to kick us out of here, but just in case, let's move into what I call a rapid fire round. What is one thing, you could say many actually, but what are one or some things that you and Ilya disagree on? Preferably around technology, but could be anything. If he doesn't like fasting, throw him under the bus as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we disagree on the technology level is what you should start when you're developing. And my position is that it is better for you, for the creator to develop some set of particular functionalities, show it to the world, and then open it up to developers so they are able to implement on top of this and having all of this as the case already. This is the Apple approach. This is how they launched iPhone. 
they develop their own applications and then they open the app store for everybody else. So that's, that's what I believe is a proper way to do Ilya is more anarchist from that standpoint. So he would start with allowing developers to do everything and then trying to gather it back into one single product or something different. That, that is the difference in between our approaches. Yeah. But yeah, it's just different ways of implementing or Android and Google style, if you If you're aware of it, I'm assuming he's aware of it. And I love that you're both aware of it because I've oh, actually yeah. seen it in the wild. And at times I've been like, maybe we need some more leadership on the near side here. Yeah. And yeah, or uh, maybe there are breaks in between big announcements. The cloud is a latest statement of carefully managed development cycles. I don't think that one approach is better than the other one. But it goes back to the original question. Would Aurora Cloud have been developed by any rando on the street with the baseline Aurora smart contract? Because if the answer is no, the Apple approach is correct. Yeah, I think it will be extremely hard in case you do not have a full-time job thinking of all of this stuff. In case you're hacking in the evenings and on the weekends, it will be hard to get to this point. Again, for us, it was taken two years to, to develop this tech and make sure that everything is great. And we have been thinking of this from the first day when we were implementing EBM because we understood that it needs to scale, needs to be convenient, and then that is the approach. So it was taking time for us. So again, maybe in case there will be no Aurora Labs team who is working full-time on this stuff, and then Aurora would be just existed an EBM, Maybe in five years, somebody will develop something. Yet. No one has five years. We have to do things. Today, I know. Ilya tells me the same. Lovely. And I'm telling to Ilya also. Ilya, you need, like, this thing you, should have been developed. You need yesterday. a wife and a kid and then we'll talk. <laughs> okay, next one. When we spoke in Bogota, and actually every time that I've seen you, I really enjoy standing next to you and seeing people's conversations. Common questions are often around how Aurora compares with other L2s. And I really enjoy, and you actually referred me to a resource, L2Beat, how you have a crystal clear understanding of the EVM as a thing, all the variables involved in making it as good as it could be, and by default, also all the shortcomings of some of these applications that may have better marketing teams. So I'm going to do a really quick round, just throwing L2s at you. And maybe you can point out maybe some of the bigger differences or yeah. improvements, say Arbitrum. So Arbitrum and Optimism are optimistic roll-ups. I do believe that this is a step back in general in terms of the technology stack. They are working on top of the centralized sequencers. And this is a very kind of centralized approach because the sequencers can sandwich your transactions. They're not able to change them, but they're able to sandwich the transactions. So only insane development in the fraud proofs, in, in additional things can elevate. And the centralization of the sequencers is the biggest problem. Aurora, on the other hand, is the L2 with decentralized sequencer. And Aurora's sequencer is near consensus, which is decentralized by default. So from that standpoint, it is. I'm going to help you out. Comparing with the ZK, with the ZK rollups, I do believe that ZK attack is pretty fabulous and absolutely great. It, it has less of the problems of this stuff. There is no necessity of having broad proofs there. So pretty good. Still, centralization of the sequencer is the similar problem. So again, why would you like 
your transactions to go to a centralized server and call it a blockchain. I do believe that that the, the biggest thing that is important is decentralized sequencing of the transactions. And from that standpoint, I don't think that MEV, for example, is a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing. It plays a very important role in the security of the rainbow bridge. So that's the thing. It's an ELT that is working with a decentralized sequencer. And from that standpoint, I do believe that's another category. The reason why I call Aurora an L2 is because there is a bridge, rainbow bridge in between Near and Aurora, and it's working on top of on top of the light client technology. So in order to break Near, which is implied if you would like to break Aurora, you would need to break all of the validators, I would say, right? or, or like the majority of you, you would need to break the consensus. And then the light client of Near on Ethereum, which is Ethereum smart contract, is going to show you this problem. It means that in case you really would like to break everything, you need to also to break Ethereum smart contracts. And for this, you need to break Ethereum. And that's why against the retrospective attacks, the, the security of Aurora is absolutely similar to security of Near and Ethereum combined. So that's the core thing. I believe, to put it straightforward, you do not born as an L2. You can grow to become an L2. Wow. There was a lot. Yeah, that's a clip from TikTok. So let me see if I got everything, because there was a lot there. Decentralized sequencers are a big problem. And the key issue that I want to clarify for somebody that gets a technology, we don't, they don't have a clear solution to it. It's not like not it's in yet. the roadmap in three months time, also honky dory. There are challenges there that are yet to be solved. Yes. They have to be optimistic to believe that. Yes. Interesting. And the second point, maybe to have a fleb example, if you really want to help me, let's break those fucking chains. How would an attack the decentralized sequencers look like? Who is running the sequencers now? What sort of behavior would it take to say that it's being corrupted or Yeah, you can try to you can try to execute potentially execute high value transfers or some kind of high value transactions to kind of a big bounty. For anyone who's going to send with your transaction, who's, for everyone who's going to reorder the transactions. Sequencers are run by the same teams who are launching these protocols, right? So obviously, there is less intention for them to do this. But in case there is less intention, why would you not deposit the money in a bank? Because they have less intention of losing you as a customer. That is an argument that I find extremely annoying in crypto. Because we start with trust, but verify. And we want to put things on the blockchain, smart contracts, self-executing code. You can verify it because we want to remove the human error. You know, humans everywhere, even if it's not malicious, you can make a mistake. So the fact that we now have a blockchain that requires you to trust the people that deployed it, it defeats the purpose. And it's always... In the edge cases where you truly need it to be decentralized and resilient, where they're going to get you. Yeah. So it's, it's less about trusting them because once the fraud proofs are fully developed and then everything is great and they can move that. But the censorship is something different. And this is what decentralization is helping us to fight. Executing the transaction in Ron and executing the transaction in the wrong moment of time or not executing the transaction surely has pretty comparable consequences. They say that there is a, there is a kind of criminal 
action or criminal negligence. Negligence, yeah. So that's the similar thing. And yeah, obviously decentralized networks help to fight this. In case one participant does have a an intention to censor your transaction, there is a high probability that some other participants do not have this intention. I think the lab example there would be from personal experience, sadly, I don't sell, I get liquidated. Smart contract and a lending protocol, usually if the collateral falls under the minimum level, the contract automatically sells your assets to pay the debt. FTX, centralized, Alameda, allegedly had no liquidation whatsoever. So there was a lot of bad debt accumulating. And I guess that the decentralized or centralized sequencers hybrid would be it is meant to be liquidating you, but in that middle layer, somebody could potentially interfere with unintended negative consequences yeah. or intended malicious. Yeah, somewhat. The analogy is correct, but also other things. I, uh, like, I tried again, my best. I, uh, again, I, I don't have the intention to shit on other projects. I actually believe that Arbitrum team is a tremendous team in terms of the engineering quality. They are great. They are they're executing. Also very good. I have several friends. Yeah, absolutely great. This particular theme of the centralization of the sequencing of transactions uh, is, I believe, that's the still needs and rest. I'm not going to make a shit in any more blockchains. Go to L2Beats if you're interested. Final question. Yep. March 2021, I'm on a Twitter space or Clubhouse. Dude, this is for the Clubhouse days. Clubhouse. Yeah, shout out to those who remembered Clubhouse. It was basically just me and James Wong. That was the near community at the time, or at least those who joined the clubhouse. But I liked it because he took the time to explain some things to me that I didn't quite understand. And he mentioned the light clients on Near, on Ethereum, later in the year on Aurora. And that blew my mind. That's when I told James, this is actually ETH 2.0 delivered. And he's like, it's like 1.5. You'd need to have full client for it to actually sync state. Back and forth, I think you could explain once again how the light clients work and how you're basically anchoring both networks and that the near security layer actually goes beyond the two billion stake right now. Because even if you were to nuke all of them, say we're all here, uh, light goes mm -hmm. off, you could still retrieve the state from the ETH light client. Is that correct? Uh, no, you are not able to retrieve oh, the state. But you, retrieve. Uh, but you are able to that this particular copy of the state is correct. Okay. So in case there is there is one one computer that is not corrupted and holds the state of near, then you're able to verify that this copy of the state is correct. Close enough. So that would be the light client. Are there plans? First off, are there any other blockchains that have light clients that work in this way? Usually, uh, the proper blockchain should have L There are some L1s that, unfortunately, it is impossible to build a light client because they are omitting the core principles of the blockchain, for example, like Merkleized storage or things like that. I'm not going to name this, but I believe they are very wrong. It is like the centralization of sequencers is peanuts in comparison to this thing. Wow. And there are these blockchains that are 
from my point of view, they're not blockchains. This is kind of an altered databases that are disregarding the core principles of the blockchain, but they're very loud and they, they can manipulate the market a lot so that everyone feels that they are missing the we won't have to name them, go do your own research. But if you had to summarize those core principles of the blockchain as we wrap it up, what would you say they are? Um, I would say it is a decentralization, covers many, many things, including the creation of the or including the processing of the transactions and also ordering the transactions. I would say the user is the party who should be in control of authenticating of the actions that, that should not be placed. Merkleization of storage of the events of the transactions, it should happen. It, it should be working like that. Blockchain should be working in a way that only a decentralized consensus is something that needs to be achieved in order for the action to be committed and become a and kind of update an action. So that's that's the most important. There should not be the situation when you know, a centralized actor is able. Unfortunately, not all of things in the world are able to be put on the blockchain or are able to be designed with these principles. However, quite a lot of them can. So let's finally move towards the mass adoption of blockchain technology and, let, and make world a little bit more resilient, a little bit less trusted and more trustless and a little bit Ever. That is a fantastic place to wrap it up. Alex, thanks so much for joining. I know this was very last minute. Honestly, I feel like we could have done another hour. I've got some ideas on how to do some smaller experiments on voting, on how to do on AI on the blockchain, on a ton of things. So we'll have to have you back on. But for now, Thank you. I know that you're jet lagged. You've had more than one keynote today and there is a raging party tonight. Very yeah. grateful for your time. Thanks, everybody. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.